Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Hey, it's Karina Longworth. If you want to listen to You Must Remember This without ads, the best way to do that is by signing up for Stitcher Premium. Just go to stitcherpremium.com or the Premium tab in your Stitcher app and sign up with the promo code REMEMBER to try a free month of premium listening. You'll get ad-free listening to You Must Remember This, as well as all Stitcher and Earwolf shows, and your premium subscription supports our show directly, too. That's stitcherpremium.com, promo code REMEMBER, for a free month of premium listening. Thanks. You must remember a kiss is just a kiss, a sign of Margo was obsessed with the whole mystery of Ernest Hemingway. The, I love bullfighting, I love great wine, I love great living. Those were the days of Studio 54 in Halston, and there was all this coke around. I was using a lot of substances, but I got to tell you, it was damn fun. Margo Hemingway was found dead in her apartment in Santa Monica. The Los Angeles coroner's office confirmed the 41-year-old model actress had taken her own life. There is an irony. It was 35 years ago today, her grandfather, the famed novelist Ernest Hemingway, killed himself. Welcome to another episode of Make Me Over, a special presentation of You Must Remember This. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today, we're going to tell the story of two women born with one of the 20th century's most notorious last names. One of the greatest American writers of the first half of the 20th century, Ernest Hemingway died in 1961 from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. He was the most famous Hemingway, and his death got the most headlines. But there have been so many untimely deaths in the Hemingway family that some have wondered, is the clan cursed? Certainly, the notion of a Hemingway curse has loomed over the legacies of Ernest's two famous, gorgeous granddaughters, Margot and Mariel. Our storyteller today is Michael Shulman, a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of Her Again, Becoming Meryl Streep, a New York Times bestseller. Michael, what made you want to tell the stories of Margot and Mariel Hemingway? Well, I was contemplating the theme of this season, the connection between 
Hollywood and the beauty industry, and they just popped into my head. But to be honest, I didn't know a lot about them before I started. You know, I knew Mariel Hemingway, of course, from Manhattan and other movies. Actually, when I was growing up, I saw her in uh, Superman 4, Quest mm-hmm. for Peace, and this John Candy comedy, Delirious. Um, but I hadn't really thought about her or her life story. And then I vaguely knew that she had this supermodel sister, Margot, who came to a tragic end. But as I looked closer at their story, I realized that it wasn't just about celebrity or or show business. There were a lot of there was a lot going on beneath the surface. You know, on one level, it's uh, the story of a sibling relationship that's very complicated and evolves over many decades. Uh, it's also about this really serious stuff like addiction and mental illness. But then the sort of er theme that I kept coming across is the idea of fate and whether you can outrun your destiny. And that, of course, is a theme that goes back to Sophocles and Aeschylus, which is not where you expect to wind up when you start with the 1970s fashion scene. But um, yeah, I just found that there was a lot to mine in their parallel stories. Yeah, the story of Margot, you know, we did this series on this podcast called Dead Blondes, and and her story is certainly ancillary to that series and the themes that we talked about there. But what I find so interesting about talking about her in conjunction with her sister is that Mariel's story is a story of survival. Right. And, uh, you know, they they both—you know, it's amazing to me in any family, especially a dysfunctional family, how— different people experience it in wildly different ways. There's just a kind of Rashomon quality that I think all siblings have about their families and their parents. And in this case, that was sort of just magnified through the lens of uh, celebrity and brought them to very extremely different destinies. Join us, won't you? As Michael Shulman tells us the story of Mariel, Margot, and the Hemingway Curse. What do you do with a name like Hemingway? On the one hand, it represents literary genius and international glamour, living the expat life in Paris, running with the bulls in Pamplona. On the other hand, the Hemingway legacy is steeped in alcoholism, mental illness, self-destruction, and suicide. Not only did Ernest Hemingway kill himself in 1961, his grandfather, Ernest Hall, tried to shoot himself with a Civil War pistol. His father, Clarence, shot himself in 1928. His brother, Lester, killed himself in 1982. His sister, Ursula, died of a drug overdose in 1966. And his first wife, Elizabeth Hadley Richardson, lost her own father to suicide in 1903. Like the Kennedys, the Hemingway name is synonymous with the romance of the 20th century. But it also seems cursed like something out of a Greek tragedy. Sisters Margot and Marielle, granddaughters of Ernest Hemingway, inherited not only the family name, but the legacy of dysfunction that came with it. In the 1970s, both sisters became famous in their own right, one as a supermodel who shot to the top of the fashion world, the other as an actress who was nominated for an Oscar by the time she was 18. Both had to navigate industries in which a woman's value was linked to her youth and attractiveness, while their movie roles played up the dangers of feminine beauty, casting them as objects of male adoration, as well as victims of male possession, 
jealousy, and violence. But their paths diverged in significant ways. While Margot Hemingway tried to parlay her fame as a cover girl into an acting career, only to fall on her face, Marielle Hemingway emerged from her sister's misguided star vehicle to become a star herself. While Margot was drawn to her grandfather's thrill-seeking legend, Marielle was attuned from an early age to the dark side of the Hemingway myth. And while both sisters weathered the ups and downs of show business and the demons that seemed etched into their DNA, one sister ultimately succumbed to the Hemingway curse, while the other looked it square in the face and decided to conquer it. Margot Louise Hemingway was born in 1954, the second daughter of Jack Hemingway, Ernest's eldest son, and his wife, Bira, nicknamed Puck. Margot's name was originally spelled M-A-R-G-O, but when she became a model, she would change it to the more exotic M-A-R-G-A-U-X, claiming that her parents had been drinking Chateau Margot wine on the night she was conceived. When Margot was seven years old, her grandfather, Papa Ernest, got a 12-gauge shotgun from his basement in Ketchum, Idaho, and shot himself in the head. He had been dealing with debilitating depression and getting electroshock treatments, but his fourth wife, Mary, told the papers that his death was accidental. At the time, Puck was pregnant with her third child, Marielle, who was born five months later and named after a Cuban port where her father and grandfather had gone fishing. Seven years younger than Margot, Marielle picked up early on that she had been a mistake, the product of a drunken fishing trip in Oregon. In Mill Valley, California, the Hemingway household was full of unspoken tension and booze. Marielle would later say that her mother never really consented to marrying Jack. She had been worn down by four years of courtship, and her unhappiness was palpable. The couple would get into bitter fights, and Marielle would be woken up by the sound of bottles being thrown. She would cope by ordering her toys on the shelf. She later wrote, I fought chaos with order. Later on, that obsession with self-control would touch every aspect of my life, my relationship with food, with men, with work, with my own emotional honesty. But at the time, it saved me. I controlled my immediate environment so vigilantly because I didn't know what else to do. The family's already tenuous life became even more strained when the oldest sister, Muffet, began sneaking out to San Francisco and going to Grateful Dead concerts. She would come home high on LSD, babbling about how she was a butterfly. Alarmed, the family relocated to Ketchum, Idaho, where Papa Ernest had killed himself. But Muffet's erratic behavior only got worse. She would run through the streets naked, and Marielle once saw her holding a pair of scissors to her mother's face. Her parents were forced to send Muffet to a psychiatric institution. Muffet's problems were especially hard on Margot, the messy, mischievous middle daughter who craved her parents' attention. If it had been a later decade, she probably would have been treated for dyslexia, attention deficit disorder, and hyperactivity, in addition to her medication for epileptic seizures. 
But back in the 60s, Margot was just a problem child. At 14, she started hanging out at the local bar. She would go to the mountains with a boda bag full of tequila and ski down drunk. Margot acquired a reputation for being loose, a word that Marielle didn't quite understand, but she knew that it was bad. Marielle was uncomfortable with her older sister's chaos and said that sharing a room with her was like living with a monster. One time, on a family vacation in France, after the sisters stuffed their faces with croissants, Marielle caught Margot in the bathroom, sticking her finger down her throat. She had no idea why anyone would purposely throw up. As a child, Marielle was a keen observer of the family dynamics. Her parents' marriage, which was never particularly loving, went even more downhill in 1970, when Jack had a heart attack and began an affair with his nurse, an echo of Ernest Hemingway's affair with a nurse during World War I, which inspired the plot of A Farewell to Arms. Every night at 5 o'clock, Jack and Puck would gather the family for what they called wine time. Wine time would always start out fun, but after the second or third glass, the couple would start squabbling. After the kids went to bed, the fourth glass would come out, and then the fifth, and the fighting would get worse. The next day, Marielle would wind up cleaning up glass and blood. No one talked about the dysfunction, which taught Marielle not to express her feelings. In Ketchum, Marielle was enrolled in Ernest Hemingway Elementary, where her classmates assumed that she owned the school and called her a rich bitch, even though she knew very little about her famous grandfather. No one spoke about how Ernest died, but at one summer party, Marielle overheard her relatives talking about suicide and pieced it together for herself. This began a lifelong fear of the Hemingway curse. Was it a genetic predisposition to depression and alcoholism, or an unhealthy family environment that produced disastrous emotional habits? Whatever the cause, it's the kind of family album that gets you thinking. As Margot became more rebellious, her parents sent her to a boarding school in Portland. With Muffet in and out of institutions, that left Marielle alone with her parents. When she was 11, her mother was diagnosed with cancer and told that she had months to live, thrusting Marielle into the role of caretaker. Her need for order made her obsessive about how she ate. She wasn't bulimic like Margot, but she limited her diet to a strict list of foods. For almost a year, she ate only peanut butter and honey sandwiches. Margot, meanwhile, was forging a new life far from home. In 1974, Evil Knievel was planning to jump the Snake River Canyon in southern Idaho. And 19-year-old Margot, who was back from boarding school, got a job helping out with publicity. One of her co-workers was going on a business trip to New York City to meet a boxing promoter, and Margot, craving adventure, tagged along. From across the palm court at the Plaza Hotel in New York, a man 14 years her senior noticed Margot sipping tea. His name was Errol Wettinson, and he and his brother had founded the Wetson's Hamburger Chain. He was now a full-time playboy. That night, 
he knocked on the door of Margot's suite with a bottle of champagne. Four months later, she moved into Wettinson's apartment, which had previously belonged to his friend, Prince Egon von Furstenberg. He started thinking of himself as my Svengali. He told me what colors to wear and to cover my legs because they were too heavy. We would go to black tie parties on the bus, then Errol would fix it so we came home in somebody's limousine. Even when Wetson's hamburgers filed for bankruptcy, that didn't slow down Wetson's social life. He took Margot to star-studded parties, where she befriended the likes of Liza Minnelli, Cher, and Bianca Jagger. Intimidated by her new circle, Margot drank and got high. In my grandfather's time, it was a virtue to drink a lot and never show it. And like him, I wanted to live my life to the fullest, with gusto. Wettinson encouraged Margot to pursue modeling, and he knew the right people to make it happen. She signed with an agency, which told Margot, who was six feet tall, to get her weight down to 136 pounds. The top designer, Halston, was so taken with her that he started dialing fashion editors all over town. The Hemingway name only added to her allure. Thirty years before the Hilton or Kardashian sisters, it was Margot who became famous for being young, beautiful, willing to party, and the possessor of a famous last name. Even so, she presented herself as a regular country girl who still spoke in yokel slang. I was basically a little shit in cowboy boots going yippy-skippy and yahoo with a big grin. Even though the fashion press pointed out that she was a size 12 or 14, larger than most models, Margot's rise was dizzyingly fast. She appeared on the covers of Women's Wear Daily, Elle, Harper's Bazaar, and Vogue. And in the summer of 1975, she made the cover of Time magazine, alongside the headline, The New Beauties. Within a year, she was married to Wettinson and signed an unprecedented million-dollar contract with Fabergé as the face of Babe Perfume, making her the highest-paid model of 1975. At the height of her fame, Margot met the Italian movie producer Dino De Laurentiis. I'm gonna make you a star, he told Margot from behind his giant desk which made her laugh because she thought people only said that kind of thing in movies. Her star vehicle would be called Lipstick. Margot would play off her own image in the role of a famous fashion model who gets raped by her little sister's music teacher. Margot signed on, but she was nervous about taking on her first acting job. To make herself more comfortable, she suggested that the part of the supermodel's little sister be given to her own little sister, Marielle. Marielle was confused by her sister's sudden rise to fame. It seemed like one day Margot had left for New York, and the next she was on national magazine covers. Things got even weirder when Marielle was flown to New York City to meet Dino De Laurentiis and the director Lamont Johnson to audition for Lipstick. The audition was at an indoor swimming pool, where Margot and Marielle were told to get in and splash around and act like sisters. Lipstick begins with a close-up of red, luscious lips and music that can only be described as bow-chicka-bow-bow. Bow. Oh, 
We assume what we're hearing is a porn set, but it turns out to be a photo shoot for a lipstick brand. And Chrissy is the supermodel played by Margot. Oh to make art further imitate life, the man behind the lens is played by the real fashion photographer, Francesco Scavulo, who had shot Margot for a 20-page feature in Vogue. Marielle, who turned 14 on the set, watched her sister modeling for the first time and was stunned at how self-assured she seemed, shifting from sensual to sweet and back again. In fact, Margot was terrified, especially since her dyslexia made it hard to learn lines. She kept a stash of Coke handy for confidence. But as the rushes came back, everyone told her she was giving an Academy Award-caliber performance. We next see Chrissy modeling on a beach, where her kid sister Kathy played by Mariel, shows up in brown overalls with her seemingly mild-mannered music teacher, Mr. Stewart. Hey, Chris, this is my music teacher, Mr. Stewart. Hi. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Fine, thank you. You know you got these favorite men in the world, don't you? Uh-uh. <sighs> You've got to be a wonderful music teacher. Chris, we're going to be ready in a second. Mr. Stewart asks Chrissy if he can play her some of his music, and we soon discover that his music is dissonant, avant-garde, electronica. He shows up at Chrissy's apartment and plays one of his compositions on a boombox, but she gets a phone call and retreats into her bedroom. Mr. Stewart is so insulted by her slight and so turned on to be in her presence that he follows her into the bedroom and rapes her. There is nothing subtle about this rape scene. It's long and graphic and violent. We see him slamming her head against a bedpost, threatening her with broken glass, and tying her naked on the bed. At one point, he smears her brand name lipstick all over her face, says, I want it on me, and then stands over her and unzips his fly. The entire scene lasts eight minutes, and Margot is naked for pretty much all of it. At the end, little Kathy comes home and witnesses her music teacher lying on top of her sister. The middle part of the movie is a straightforward courtroom drama. Mr. Seward is arrested, and both Chrissy and Kathy are put on the stand. When Chrissy testifies the defense lawyer muddies the waters with some classic slut-shaming, displaying her magazine ads and saying, I want you to look at this frame once again. Remembering, of course, that it's one frame from a long, slow, continuous action. And I want you to tell me, we're none of us here experienced with this, with this kind of work. Can you tell me how someone managed to look as uh, seductive as this, as suggestive as this? Do you have to th- think certain things? Bring certain images to mind? Yes. Images of men, I assume? Yes. And these are really meant to make you hot, isn't that true? Excite you a bit? A little. Very well. Sexy thoughts that are. I object, Your Honor. That's vague and ambiguous. Objection overruled. I'm going to allow that. Answer the question. Once Mr. Stewart is on the stand, the prosecutor turns the tables by blasting his dissonant music to show how depraved and dark he truly is. 
Nevertheless, the jury finds him not guilty. Chrissy buys a rifle for self-protection. Sometime later, we see Chrissy at another photo shoot in the Pacific Design Center in West Hollywood. Kathy gets bored and goes wandering around the building, where she comes across Mr. Stewart rehearsing for some kind of laser dance performance. He lures Kathy close to him and asks, Do you really believe I raped your sister? Kathy runs away and he chases her through the halls and rapes her, off camera. When Chrissy realizes what happened, she runs to the parking lot in her red gown, grabs the rifle from her car, and shoots Mr. Stewart dead, punctuating the kill with a victory shot to the crotch. The last thing we see is a jury acquitting Chrissy of murder. The credits thank both the NYPD sex crimes unit and Tiffany for the jewelry. If the plot of Lipstick sounds familiar, that's because it's part of a popular subgenre of 70s exploitation, the rape-revenge film. These movies typically begin with a woman being violently raped, either by one man or a group of men. In the absence of legal justice, the victim, or some ally of the victim, takes retribution into her own hands. Lipstick came out between two prominent examples, The Last House on the Left and I Spit on Your Grave. Both of these movies have been remade in recent years. But Lipstick has been all but forgotten, even though on paper it had more prestige. Besides Margot, it starred Chris Sarandon as Mr. Stewart, a year after his Oscar-nominated performance in Dog Day Afternoon. And the prosecutor was played by Anne Bancroft, nine years after she was Mrs. Robinson in The Graduate. The rape-revenge films of the 70s piggybacked off the second-wave feminist movement and the heightened awareness of rape that came with it. But then as now, the genre has one glaring problem. While these movies are ostensibly about female empowerment, they typically start with a rape scene so prolonged and explicit that you can't help wondering if the purpose is to titillate a male audience that might fantasize about that kind of thing, only to let them off the hook by having them cheer on the heroine's revenge in the final act. Lipstick, which was written, directed, and produced by men, is certainly guilty of this. It tells you that it's against rape, and the Anne Bancroft character even gives statistics about how few rapes are reported and prosecuted. But it also gives its audience the thrill of seeing Margot Hemingway, the biggest supermodel of the era, tied up and topless. Plenty of critics pointed out this contradiction when Lipstick was released in April 1976. In the New York Post, Frank Rich wrote, The rape scene is a grueling, extended episode in violent sex designed to turn on men. And if anything, the sequence feeds a male audience's fantasies about committing the very crime Lipstick pretends to abhor. A writer for Ms. Magazine reported that after one screening, she overheard two men independently expressing, quote, sympathy for the rapist and the sentiment that the females, having teased him to one degree or another, were just asking for it. But the main problem that critics focused on was Margot. Frank Rich winked at her family history in writing, Miss Hemingway, for whom the bells are no doubt already tolling, is not only a dreadful actress, she's instantly recognizable as a spoiled dilettante. 
and that makes it impossible for audiences to care about her too much one way or the other. Vincent Canby was somewhat gentler in the New York Times, writing that Margot was not much of an actress yet. But he ended his review saying, The revelation of lipstick is another Hemingway. First name, Mariel, Margot's 14-year-old sister who plays her sister in the film. As the chief witness to the events within the movie and its ultimate victim, she gives an immensely moving, utterly unaffected performance that shows up everything else as a calculated swindle. It's true that Margot's performance is pretty wooden, while Marielle has a naturalistic ease in front of the camera. Part of that came out of naivete. When Marielle first saw Lipstick at a movie theater on 42nd Street, she realized for the first time that her parents had let her star in a movie in which she was raped. This made her feel deeply uneasy, but also excited that she was getting a taste of the adult world. She even got a Golden Globe nomination for Best New Female Star, the only award recognition that Lipstick received. But the bad reviews for Margot, combined with the good ones for Marielle, deepened the rift between the two sisters. Marielle recalled, Lipstick put me in a nearly impossible position. I was proud of the work I had done. I did feel that I connected to something in the role and that I understood how to do this strange business of realistic pretending. At the same time, I didn't want to be used as a weapon to disappoint and dishearten my sister. She had her sights set on an acting career, and it seemed like maybe it was over before it had really even begun. When she returned to Idaho, her mother's cancer had spread to her spine, and Mariel was convinced that it was her fault for going off and having fun making a movie when she should have been at home keeping her own mother alive. What Marielle didn't realize yet was that while Margot's movie career would never truly recover, hers was just beginning. One night, Marielle was doing her homework before dinner when her mother told her that Woody Allen was on the phone. Alan had seen her in lipstick and wanted to fly her out to New York City to audition for his new movie, Manhattan. Mariel was 16, and Alan was 42. She would be playing his girlfriend, Tracy. Unlike the precocious Tracy, Mariel was completely inexperienced when it came to sex. Before shooting the scene in which she and Alan make out in the back of a horse-drawn carriage, she practiced on her arm, in another scene, the couple is in bed. Right? Right? Hey, or let's just like around. do you hear that sound? Let's you, pull around. It'll I'm, take your hey, mind off. How many times a night do you how, how often can you make love in an evening? What is it? A lot. Yeah, I can tell a lot. That's well, a lot is my favorite number. <laughs> she really can you? Yeah, well let's do it <laughs> some strange way that you've always wanted to do, but nobody would do with you. I'm shocked. What kind of talk is that from a kid your age? Uh-huh. Well, I'll get I'll get my scuba diving equipment and we'll have a really show. Mariel had no idea what the scuba diving joke meant, so she asked her mother, who said, Don't ask stupid questions. In recent years, as Woody Allen's Ovra has been reassessed, Mariel's character in Manhattan has been Exhibit A for those who argue that you can't separate the artist from the art. We're not going to solve that one today, but a few things are worth mentioning. Number one, 
Manhattan is littered with jokes about how creepy this relationship is. In one scene discussing their incredible sex life, Alan says, As long as the cops don't burst in, I think we're going to break a couple of records. Of course, these jokes only make it creepier. Number two, watching Manhattan after watching Lipstick does not help matters. When you picture Alan seeing the freckled 14-year-old Marielle and going, yeah, she could play my girlfriend. Not incidentally, while Manhattan was being filmed, Alan repeatedly invited Marielle to go away with him to Paris. The oblivious Marielle didn't realize at first that his intentions were anything but friendly. As soon as she did realize it, she made it clear she wasn't interested. Finally, number three, Marielle is really good in Manhattan. In a role that could have been reduced to a symbol of youthful idealism, Marielle gives Tracy a real sense of vulnerability and independence. It's no wonder that the last line of the movie, in which she urges Alan to have a little faith in people, is iconic. And it's no wonder that she was nominated for an Academy Award, which immediately opened doors. She followed Manhattan with a starring role in Personal Best as a bisexual Olympic hurdler, and began a two-year relationship with the writer and director, Robert Town, who was 27 years older. Margot, meanwhile, had stalled after lipstick. She was still partying with jet-setting trips to the Alps and wild nights at Studio 54. She divorced Errol Wettinson in 1978 and found a new husband a year later, the filmmaker Bernard Fouché. But her acting was limited to B-movies, like the horror film Killer Fish. Her relationship with Marielle was tense. One night, when both sisters were in L.A., Margot invited Marielle to her room at the Westwood Marquis to help her prepare for an audition. After Marielle fell asleep, she felt a pair of hands around her throat. It was Margot, who was drunkenly shrieking, You think you're better at this, but you're just the little sister. Marielle fought her off. Margot rolled over and passed out. Marielle, still just 20, was eyeing her next role, in Bob Fosse's 1983 drama, Star 80. Star 80 is based on the true story of Dorothy Stratton, a Playboy playmate who was murdered by her estranged husband while she was dating the director, Peter Bogdanovich. Dorothy's story, which is covered in a previous episode of the podcast, immediately appealed to Marielle. But Fosse was unconvinced, telling her, Dorothy was a classic victim. I don't see you that way. He added, One other thing. You're not a voluptuous person. Mariel told him not to worry. After personal best, she was eager to play up her femininity and was planning to get breast implants. Fosse had his assistant refer her to a plastic surgeon and gave her the part. One night during rehearsals, Fosse invited Mariel up to his room at the Beverly Hills Hotel for a drink, then chased her around for 15 minutes, begging for sex. I have never not fucked my leading lady, he said. To which Marielle responded, Well, meet the first. After that, the shoot was a roller coaster. Some days, Fosse would praise her. Other days, he would call her nasty names, which may have been some sort of ploy to make her feel vulnerable. But Marielle didn't need the help. To get in character, she thought about her own sister, Margot who, like Stratton, had been put on a pedestal for her beauty 
and controlled by men with dubious interests. Star 80 may be Dorothy's story, but it's hard to watch it without thinking of Margot in lipstick. This time, it's Mariel as the sex symbol posing for the cameras, and Mariel who gets attacked by a man she thought she could trust. To recreate Dorothy's nude centerfolds, the film hired a real Playboy photographer. Just before the movie was released, Fosse leaked the photos to Playboy. Mariel was appalled. Margot, meanwhile, was professionally flatlining and deeply in debt. In 1981, her new husband, Bernard Fouché, had an idea. He would direct Margot in a documentary retracing her grandfather's adventures through Europe. The couple spent the next four years working on the project, which was released after Margot's death under the title Hemingway, Winner Take Nothing. Winner Take Nothing is on YouTube, and it paints Margot as a fun-loving free spirit with some serious demons. We see her taking in post-impressionist art in Paris, riding a gondola in Venice. Her voice is raspy, almost like Marge Simpson's, and she's much looser than she is in lipstick. But the shoot strained her relationship with Fouché. Margot thought that he was only in it for the money, especially after he dismissed Ernest Hemingway as nothing but an alcoholic. It's a terrible thing to say about anybody, but the guy was jealous. That's when I knew Bernard was jealous of Ernest Hemingway. In Pamplona, Margot watched a matador slay a bull. As it slowly died, bleeding from the nose, she felt like the same thing was happening to her. She left Fouché the next day. The failure of her second marriage worsened her depression, which worsened her drinking. She had thoughts of killing herself. Over Christmas 1986, she smashed her pelvic bone and several vertebrae in a skiing accident. She spent nine weeks in a hospital in London, where she drank two bottles of wine per day, a way of numbing her boredom and unhappiness, and her insecurity from being 35 pounds overweight. When she got out, she moved back to New York to revive her modeling career, with no luck. In October 1987, she had an epileptic seizure and almost bit off her tongue. She took this as a sign that she could either get better or die, and she checked herself into a Betty Ford Center in L.A. On the flight, she drank half a bottle of vodka. She came out of rehab feeling like a new person, with plans to record a salsa rock album in Paris. But her problems hadn't gone away. By 1990, she owed $900,000 in back taxes to the IRS. So she posed nude in Playboy, an echo of Marielle's experience with Star 80 that was an echo of Margot's role in Lipstick. With little acting work, Margot spent the early 90s chasing New Age spiritual cures. Friends were optimistic, especially when she got a gig hosting an adventure series for the Discovery Channel. Then, one day in 1996, she stopped returning calls. After a week, her friend Judy went to check on her apartment in Santa Monica. Margot's white Ford Bronco was parked outside, but no one answered the door. A construction worker broke in and found Margot's body in bed, already partly decomposed. It was July 1st, nearly 35 years to the day after the death of Ernest Hemingway. 
Margot, was 41. By then, Marielle's career had also cooled. After Star 80, the offers slowed, and she wondered whether the movie had held up too honest a mirror to Hollywood's treatment of women, and whether people in the industry associated their discomfort with her. For a while, she and her husband, Stephen Chrisman, ran a restaurant on the Upper East Side. Marielle threw herself into yoga and meditation. She was still obsessive about diets, which she took to unhealthy extremes, subsisting on only burnt popcorn or only coffee. She was terrified of gaining weight because she associated it with Margot, and she associated Margot with losing control. She moved back to Idaho to raise her daughters, Langley and Dree, and to be near her mother, who died in 1988. A few years later, she auditioned for Basic Instinct, but lost out to Sharon Stone. Margot's cause of death was initially thought to be an accidental overdose of anti-seizure medication. But a few days later, the coroner reported that it was suicide. Mariel was in complete shock. There was no note, no explanation. The Hemingway curse was now all over the headlines, causing Mariel to wonder if it was coming for her next. I was wounded and angry. The last thing I needed was to be told that I am part of an incurably sick and damned family. I wanted to show people my own healthy life, my family, and my obsession with exercise, meditation, and nourishing food. But Margot's friends blamed me for not supporting her enough, and my father disappeared so far inside his grief that he became nearly invisible. The blows kept on coming. Her father died in 2000, and soon after that, her husband was diagnosed with stage 4 melanoma. Mariel devoted herself to caring for him, an unwelcome throwback to her childhood caring for her mother. As it turned out, his cancer was the only thing keeping their marriage intact. Once it went into remission, they split up. As she entered her 40s, Mariel had a choice. She could let the Hemingway curse consume her, or she could take the control she had been seeking since childhood. The way she did that was by telling her own story. Starting in 2001, she wrote three memoirs. She became an advocate for mental health awareness and suicide prevention. In 2013, she released a documentary called Running From Crazy, produced by Oprah Winfrey for the Oprah Winfrey Network. Mariel reveals that her father had sexually abused her two older sisters when they were young, a claim she walked back somewhat in one of her memoirs. Still, I'd recommend Running From Crazy. It's a well-made portrait of someone doing everything she can to reckon with her past and take ownership of her life, even if her self-improvement talk is a little, you know, Oprah. You see her jumping on a trampoline and rock climbing with her new life partner, the former stuntman Bobby Williams. She seems happy. Like Lipstick, the film begins with a photo shoot, but this time it's Mariel posing for a town and country cover with her 23-year-old daughter Langley, who's now a model, as is her sister Dree. In the next scene, Mariel and Langley sit on a porch talking with a reporter who asks them, I'm very curious to hear you both say what you feel the Hemingway legacy is. 
Or do you only have to deal with it when people like me come and talk about it? Yeah, no, I don't really think about a Hemingway legacy ever. As powerful of an idea as the Hemingway curse might be, maybe even curses have a shelf life. Thanks for listening to Make Me Over, a special presentation of You Must Remember This. This episode was written and performed by Michael Shulman. The parts of Mariel and Margot Hemingway were performed by Tavi Gevinson. Make Me Over was created and directed by Karina Longworth. That's me. I also edited the scripts. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Make Me Over is produced by Tomika Weatherspoon, and the audio is edited by Jared O'Connell and Tomika Weatherspoon. Our audio engineers are Jared O'Connell, Andrea Christens, and Brendan Burns. The supervising producer is Josephine Martirana, and the executive producer is Chris Bannon. We'll be back next week with another tale about the intersection of 20th century Hollywood and the beauty industry. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Stitcher.